Production. Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed is a weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 295 is recorded live August 25th, 2016. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where we are getting close to the point where we will see yellow school buses driving down the road. Many parts of the country you've already gotten that. Joining me this week we have Kevin Ailes. How are you doing today, Kevin? Pretty good. Yourself, Darren? I am doing great. And we also have a special guest, Bob Underhill. How are you doing today, Bob? I'm doing fine. And Kevin, why don't you give us a little bit of background about Bob before... We get into the interview. Well, um, as far as the background on Bob, you know, I can tell you quite a bit about him. Maybe the best thing to do for our listeners, because I know most of you are quite computer and tech oriented, just Google Robert Underhill Diver. You know, this guy has been involved in numerous tech dives, exploration, wreck finding uh, throughout the Great Lakes. He's been doing deco dives since 1975. He's been dealing with Trimix since 1993. You know, he was involved in the finding of the uh, of the Michigan. You know, a lot of you know he's done many many dives on the Thomas Hume. You know, he is definitely one of our local diving celebrities. Uh, like I say, just just Google him, and you'll see far more than I can tell you about him actually. So, Bob, one of the first questions we like to ask everybody who comes in the show is, what got you started in scuba diving? That's easy, Sea Hunt. When I was a kid, <laughs> pretty much everybody my age got into diving because of Sea Hunt. Mike Nelson. I can see that. I can totally see that. So how long but between you watched Sea Hunt and you had the opportunity to, to learn to dive? Well, see, I'm not sure. Well, sea Hunt came out in the late 50s, early 60s. I was first certified in 1964 when I was 14. Nice. And on a double hose regulator, pretty much the same gear as you see on Sea Hunt. Now, what was that uh, certification like back then? Um, there was no checkout dives. They basically showed you how to use the stuff in a pool and told you to be careful. <laughs> Um, actually, the year after I graduated, they started checkout dives. Uh, so, so you got in before the line, because I've, I've, I've heard of a lot of divers saying it was a little bit like a boot camp. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yep, yep. A little bit more than what our open water is, is, is offering today. Yeah, we had a swim lapse, and of course, even though I, I used to teach in the 70s, and we were still doing mask fins and snorkel then, where you had to throw your mask fins and snorkel to the bottom of the pool and uh, go down and recover it on one breath. Clear your mask come up. Yeah, um, I did it when I was. I did it as a 14 year old, and I remember. I still remember the uh, the entire class applauded me as a young boy to do it <laughs> when I did it. A lot more physically demanding than it is today. Much more. I guess so. Yeah. I just thought it was fun. I was a kid. What is your passion about diving? What is the the thing that is scuba diving that you really can't get enough of? Shipwrecks. Um, it's like exploring haunted houses. They say I'm kind of addicted to it. I, um, You're in the right place. Yeah. Well, yeah, I've seen a lot of them. And, you know, um, over the years, I've seen some real characters and had some real adventures. It's been a great life. So what's your favorite shipwreck? That's easy. That would be the uh, Mather. I was just on it last week up at Whitefish Point. It's in about 180 feet of water. It's got two of the three masts standing, and it's 
pretty intact. In fact, my buddy and I went down, did uh, about a 25-minute dive somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, we went in. You can go through an open hatch in the side, and you can uh, go into the engine room. So we, she swam ahead of me shooting video, and I followed um, shooting stills and went back beyond the engine, around into the work areas. Uh, she cut out, and then I went back into the uh, common areas back behind. And then after that, we came up, uh, went down to the prop, um, took some pictures of the prop, came back up on the deck, um, and then went up to the bow. I worked our way up to the bow. Um, I believe I went through the bow on the uh, middle deck, um, middle cargo deck, and came up through that way. Um, and then just circled back. I've got, I don't know how many guys in the matter, but it's always fun. The interesting point, when I got back to Whitefish, I actually, an uh, old guy came up and told me he was the guy that discovered the matter back in 1978. And I guess he had taken quite a bit of the stuff off it and donated most of the museum so you could go up and see some of their effects in the museum at a Whitefish Point. As someone who's seen many, many shipwrecks, ask what is it about the matter which makes it your favorite? Well, I I enjoy wood. It's an early wooden steamer. It's uh it's known as a steam barge, and they were built in a period of about 20 years beyond when uh, they started uh, putting engines in in, in uh, sailing ships. So even though it has a steam engine in it, it has a full complement of sail. Um, they would evolve. They evolved probably within 20 years to the steel lake carrier that they still use today. But um, they were an open cargo boat used for bulk carry, carrying bulk cargoes. Um, the matter was carrying grain. That's what the guy was explaining to me. In fact, the guy that found it told me he'd like me to go down and grab a uh, jar full of uh, jar, jar full of grain, but I'm not sure it's legal today. Anyway, but uh, <laughs> so, but a lot of them were carrying iron ore and stuff. So they're bulk carriers. There's actually three of them up at Whitefish: the Vienna, the Mather, and the uh, um, Osborne. I actually dove all three last week, um, and they're they're fairly unique in their place in history. They're a transition between sail and the steam um, bulk carrier they use in the Great Lakes today. Okay. Yeah, I'm looking at the article here on Wikipedia about the Mather, and that is a quite, quite impressive boat in its day, and I, it's a little bit out of my depth range, um, but you kind of talking to you just further inspires me to learn to go a little deeper. So you said that's a, at 180? Yeah, you get the deck at about 155. Um, you can tell at the top, a little top of that on top of cabins. Okay. Um, but I, I think I had 174 on it last week on my computer. Okay. Hovering, now, over, doing a... hovering over the, the prop on the bottom. Okay. And you did a full penetration when you did that uh, 174, you said? Yeah, you can go inside. That's the best part. I love going inside. Mm-hmm. So, Don't... you know. Sounds like a heck of a dive. It's, it's a little bit beyond most of our listeners. There, most of our listeners tend to be in the in the sport range, but uh, certainly something to aspire to. Um, yeah, he's talking about a wreck here that's in the uh, Whitefish Point Preserve, I believe. Yeah, Whitefish Point yeah. Preserve. And, yeah, it's, yeah, it's down. Uh, it's down. It's in the steamer lane, and it's down from Whitefish Point about eighteen miles. So mm-hmm. You got to head towards the St. Mary's River about eighteen miles. You got to have okay. a flat day, which we had, and then usually make the run down and um we didn't have a buoy on it so we had to uh we actually was a line in the water so we found a line in the water and um you could jump in and attached a, a tag line on it all right so generally there's not a buoy on it because steamers take it off we had two of them go we had two of them split straight side by side we had two, two of them coming um down 
downriver, and uh, they both one went on one side, one went on the other while we were diving, while we were getting ready to dive the wreck. Yeah, I understand those guys can are not very fond of buoys out there. So, um. well, they just they just basically it's right in the steamer lane. That the John B. Cull is the same way. They're hard to keep the buoys on them because you've got the traffic all the time. Mm-hmm. So what we basically do is we basically put a buoy at 30 feet and then we put a tag line with a small buoy up above it. And that way, that's a sacrificial line, so we don't have to hook them all. In. That's basically how we start more them. Maybe so that's ten years. So that uh, the line that you're hooking to the uh, what we call a subsurface buoy is a it's a it's a lighter gauge line. So if something gets hooked yes. in it, it comes it, it should come free anyway without. Yeah, it fish. does. It usually usually the lower buoys there they're kind of hard to pick up sometimes. But um, with the GPS, um, the divers can put the numbers on them mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, a lot of times what you do is uh, you get out the GPS number and you put a diver in the water with a mask that you see down 30 feet. And, nice. and then they'll swim down and pick up line. And what kind of visibility? Put a line on it. And what kind of visibility do you have? When you got a line on the, it's lucky when you get out there and you've already got a line on the wreck, but it doesn't always happen, particularly at Whitefish Point. Like I said, there's a lot of traffic there. That's why there's shipwrecks. They were all collisions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's there's actually uh, in the works right now. The state is um, putting together a program to to, to buoy wrecks. Um, hopefully, within the next year, we should see a uh, many more of the wrecks on the Great Lakes buoyed. From what I understand, there are uh, 186 wrecks that have made the list to get buoyed. Um, it's kind of a work in progress. It's kind of the, the program has not fully come together, but it is in the works. So I, I don't know how many of them are deep wrecks. I haven't even seen the list. Um, Generally, they don't buoy the deep wrecks. Generally, the uh, charitable captains or the enthusiasts, mm-hmm. most of the time they're buoying, stuff they're buoying is in the sport range. I, I, I think, Kevin, that those were the wrecks that the each individual preserve submitted the numbers to, and then the, right. the entire preserve put the paperwork in with, with all the numbers. Yeah. And well, I, I that, that's that's changing a little bit over the next year here. Um, yeah. you know, there's an article on MLive which I've shared a little bit about the uh, – the, the uh, DNR you know, becoming much the Department of Natural Resources here in Michigan becoming much more involved in buoying wrecks. Um, from what I understand, they have a stockpile of train wheels they'll be using uh, for anchors. And oh, so they're more off the wrecks and not tied to them. Then that's what. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're really trying to uh, discourage people from anchoring in the wrecks. You know, uh, you know, mm-hmm. a wreck like the Samuel Mather is very rare. To find one so so much intact, you know, and if you have, I, I know like the more popular wrecks than in sport depth, you know, around an area like the uh, oh, like the Rockaway or the um, Havana, um, those wrecks get dove hundreds of times a year, and you know, you're talking a boat that wasn't built that sturdy to begin with. Now, not in comparison like to an iron hulled freighter, and you get these wreck, the anchors dropped in these wrecks repeatedly. Um, sometimes from large charter boats, and it's not good for the wreck. Over over the years, this does a, you know it does a real number on them. And yeah, we I've, we try to keep moorings on. Them. That's why we went to the deep buoys because you know it keeps us from having to hook the wrecks, even if the, if the buoy if the lines are cleaned off. Yeah, yeah. I, You're right. I mean, I've seen a lot of damage from uh, actually uh, actually the uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it up in Tobermory. They had a charter boat pull up the wheel off that deep scooter. Um, oh, no. One in 100 feet. Yeah, the wheel's on the side, though. I, I actually dove it back in the late 70s. The wheel was up on the wreck, so one of the charter boats, the Arabia. 
So the Arabia used to have the wheel up on top, but one of the charter boats took the wheel and actually pulled it off into the dirt next to the next uh-huh. to the school. So it does happen. Well, at least, at least they put the wheel back. At least the wheel is still present. But yeah, I've also heard well, that it's, the, a, uh, it's in the dirt. But yeah, I heard that the uh, Ironsides, popular wreck out of uh, Grand Haven here in 125 feet of water. Um, understand the hogging arches took a real beating from anchors. Now the hogging arches t- t- today are laying down, but um, I guess they that was a pop that was a, a good place to hook in, back in the day. And uh, you know, one of them is broken as well, not. In pieces, but uh, you know, def- definitely you know, broken because of it. So, um, yeah, I see you've been involved in you know many many wrecks. I mean, uh, discoveries and diving and documenting and uh, you know, I wanted to see one of the things when I see one when I Google you know Bob Underhill diver, Robert Underhill diver is you have so many pictures out there accredited to you. Is there any? I mean, a lot of them from the Thomas Hume. That's a wreck that I I dove not that long ago and was very much impressed with that wreck. Is there anything you can tell us about the Thomas Hume and your involvement in the pictures on that? Well, I can I can tell you the first time I dove the Hume, I realized it was a different schooner than I've ever seen before. And I believe, we're not 100% certain, but I believe that it was uh, called a clipper scooter. Um, and it originally had two masts, and they converted to the three it has on the bottom now. But um, one of the shipbuilders in Manitowoc had worked with the clipper ships out on the East Coast. And he came in and started building some um, smaller clipper type schooners. So if you if you remember, it had a pretty nice spoon bow on it. The bow is gorgeous. Where mm-hmm. most schooners oh, yeah. in the Great Lakes are are very plumb. And uh, and and if you look inside between the uh, centerboard, you'll see two false keels, and that's very much in in uh, the way that the clipper ships were designed. So it's a flat bottom boat, which probably led to its demise. It would hold a lot of cargo, but it had a real hard turn of the bilge, and so it was a real kind of a flat bottom bottom ship. And I think uh, one of the things about a boat like that versus more of an hourglass type shape is when they go over, they go all the way over. And I'm pretty certain that's what happened to the Hume, judging by the way the masts are standing on it and stuff like that. I think it went over and uh, it went down. Okay. How how was the Thomas Hume found? Are you familiar with that? Yeah, the um, the uh, GT. Salvage out of Chicago. He's the guy that found all the airplanes in the bottom of the lake. He discovered it, and then uh, and then he gave the numbers to the, the um, couple of guys um, um, out of Chicago in uh, payment for them helping him to pull up one of the planes that he he gave to the government for the uh, government to store. All all the airplanes here, I'm sure, are aware of our belong to the U.S. government, and they leave them on the bottom until the uh, government has a place to send them and restore them. And in fact, I believe they're restoring one of the planes of the Air Zoo here in Kalamazoo right now. But anyway, um, they uh, gave the numbers, and uh, Valerie got a hold of it and decided to do a program. So um, so we would meet in the middle of the lake, and all, all four of us would dive, or five or six. So it was a pretty fun project. That's you know, in 150 feet of water, so uh, um, a lot of people could dive it and have a good time, and it, it it was really fun. I took a lot of photos on the bottom, and then uh, I think Todd shot quite a bit of video, and uh, and it, it it was a great time. They had uh, one of the really old time divers dive it with him, um, Bud Brand, I believe from uh, from Chicago area, and he was down on the wreck wearing gear from like the 60s. It was pretty interesting. <laughs> He was wearing a steel 72 and a wetsuit, and uh, he was down there diving the wreck. 
he's on on a wreck that deep on a steel 72 he but he must be uh pretty good on his air that's that's impressive yeah he was he he actually had worked on the mystery ship and helped him salvage the mystery ship back in the 60s so he's in his 80s i think 70s or 80s he's older yeah. than me which is hard to believe <laughs> okay well i i said you wasn't well bob i mean you're still diving diving deep i mean it sounds like you plan to, to dive a lot more don't sell yourself short my man well, Bud's I know an inspiration, I guess. Well, you know, you know, for our listeners, the uh, Thomas Hume, you know, it is a, it's a three-masted schooner, kind of right between uh, Chicago and Milwaukee. It's a ways offshore. Um, what's it Actually, about? Actually, it's between Milwaukee, Chicago, and uh, um, New Buffalo. New Buffalo, my, my mistake. My mistake, yeah. New Buffalo, my mistake. Okay. Yeah. Misspoke there. You can reach it in sport depth just barely. You know, uh, I believe the deck is about 125 feet, so it, it is a, yeah. a recreational sport dive if, if you want to just get to the deck. If you want to go do you know penetrations and deeper, you'll you'll need additional training and equipment and all that for, for those kind of dives. But it is a sport diveable wreck. Uh, I'd recommend taking a look online at some of the pictures of it. It is a marvelous schooner. My advice to you though is, if you do dive the Thomas Hume. Don't make any dive plans for about two weeks after that because nothing else will impress you. <laughs> I mean, it, it is a very cool dive. So. Um, Bob, I know you've been involved in a number of cool projects. I spoke to you before uh, about the Michigan. I know that's one of, one of your favorites there. Can you tell the us Michigan a little bit? The Michigan was about- my dream. Um, I actually wanted to dive the Michigan back in the 70s, and everybody told me it was too deep. Um, I talked to John Steele about it. I talked to everybody I could talk to. Um, and I, I first read about it in uh, Red Stacks Over the Horizon, probably in the 70s, and that just fascinated me. And, um, um, you know, it, 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 I don't know how it happened, but I happened to be on the team that dove it first after they found it. And it was too deep. It was in, It's in 270 feet of water, and you can get lower than that below the deck in the hole, 280 or so. Um, but it's um, pretty intact. It got crushed in the ice and it went down on a slow moonlit night. Um, and the crew survived by walking across the ice. It got caught in the ice in the middle of high, the winter of 1893, somewhere around there. I don't remember, but, um, it, it's a really nice wreck. And there again, it's another steamer. Um, it's a wooden steamer, which happens to be the ones that I love the best. And, um, I guess the coolest part about it was, um, I was exploring the back, and I wound up coming into this room where they um, they restored the lanterns, took care of the lanterns. And it's just a small room in the back behind the engine, and uh, there's a, a shelf with a big lantern above it. That was the guy's shop light. There was a rack with, I don't know, seven or eight lanterns on the right. And then down below in the mud was uh, the uh, the oil the oil drum with a, with a pump on it where he would fill the lanterns, and it was really one of the coolest things I saw. There was a bunch of globes on the, on the, on the uh, workbench. And I realized somebody like over two, over a hundred years ago, I'd walked out of that room and I was the first one to come in it. And um, I basically, at that time I was shooting video and I told the guys, I said, don't, don't go in the room. Don't touch it. I want to take a photo. So I did get back and shoot photos of it, but um, that, that was, you know, that was kind of the highlight. And uh, it, it, it's an interesting wreck. It's, it's a deep one. Um, but, uh, again, I, it was one that had always fascinated me and I wound up being on the first team just yeah. somehow. Yeah. There's a, there's a good article on the MSRA website 
that shows it. Uh, looks like uh, there's a nice drawing and then some great photos. Are those the photos that you took? Yes. Beautiful. And and I can usually tell by the photos that that is pretty deep. You said 270 feet? Yeah, the lantern room's probably uh, 255, 260. It's not all the way in the bottom. Now, they, you know, with the mussels, the, the wreck has gotten really clear. When we found it in 2005, we didn't have near the visibility they got on it now. I'll, I think I was probably the last one to dive it a couple of years ago um, with Yicca. And um, I could see the whole wreck when I got down on it, which was incredible. Um, when we were up there, we would like we would be swimming on. We had the we had the line on the bow, and we'd come down on the bow, and we never did really go down into the sand very much because we stayed on the deck and then went inside. But we couldn't see the bottom. We knew it was down there somewhere, but the visibility was probably only 15 or 20 feet before it cleared up. But there weren't very many mussels on it either, so it was a lot cleaner as far as mussel. And uh, so it, it was always it was always an interesting dive. It was more technical back then because you had to be able to navigate on it. You can see a lot more now, so it's a lot easier to get around. I think the last time I dove it, I went into the cargo hold and then went all the way back to around the boiler and then went through the through the uh, uh, companionway back to the area in the back. There's a little what there's a little companionway you can slip through around the boiler room and go all the way back to the engine in that area. So I pretty much did it all inside and then came out. Most of the doors, quite a few of the doors are open on the side where they loaded cargo, so it's pretty easy to get into. Um, the only other thing about it is, is all the cabins are collapsed and the deck is full of mud. It hit the bottom and on the stern and the deck came up the mud. And I was always kind of concerned that I didn't want to like bump into anything up there because if that whole deck came down, I, oh. I wouldn't be getting out. That would not be a good day. No. Yeah, for our listeners, uh, kind of looking at the uh, article about the uh, Michigan, org and uh, Bob and his buddy Todd White were very much involved in uh, first diving this wreck. Uh, Jeff Boss was with us, too. Okay, Jeff Boss as well? Uh, yep, I'm saying me, Todd, and Jeff. It was a three-man team. All right. Yeah, I mean, great pictures, great story here, all the details. Uh, just imagine, I mean, being, being the first people to lay eyes on this boat. Since it, what, what year was it found here? Um, 2001? 05, I believe. 05, okay. I believe. Okay. Yeah, okay, yep, June 12th. They always 12th. knew where it was, and everybody said it was too deep. And, of course, before the days of mixed gas, it was too deep. Mm-hmm. You know, 270 on air is pretty lethal. Yeah, that that would that's a little bit more than a bounce. Yeah, yeah. Well, be no point to it anyway. Even even if you made it through the dive, you're not going to remember anything anyway. You'd be so narcissistic. <laughs> yeah. You better get some good well, photos. Le- legend has it that um, shortly after it went down, one of the salvage teams. Now I don't know if this is true or not. This is a story I heard. But they said the salvage team went out and he found it. He said it was just where the captain was, and he dragged. And they put a hard hat diver down on it, and the guy got down maybe 200 feet and went crazy and told told him to pull him up and refuse to dive after that or quit. I don't remember. Ah. But supposedly like 1915 or something like that, that happened. I don't know for sure if that's true, but um, that was one of the stories that went around. That, that's a good question for Ross. He, he kind of likes those hard hat stories. Yeah. When did you start uh, doing trimix diving, Bob? Um, 1993. 
at that time, there were only two places, I believe, to learn it, either with Billy Deans down in Florida or Ed Betts out on Long Island. And I got into it pretty accidentally. Um, my wife actually did a, she's a graphic designer and did a, a logo for a, um, a shop out of Grand Haven called Under Pressure. And uh, and she gave, she wound up with a free Nitrex class, which I really didn't have any reason to use, but she told me she paid for it. So I went out and um, I met Jack Grimes and was doing Nitrox. And at that time we were diving the, uh, I was diving with a bunch of guys and we were diving the Mather and 180 on air. And uh, he found out that I was doing that, and um, he was looking for – he had been certified in Trimix earlier that year. He wanted somebody to dive Trimix with him. So um, I wound up out on Long Island learning Trimix from Ed Betts um, came back um, that fall, and um, we went and dove to Superior City, 270. And uh, I, I remember I, tell, I remember telling Jack, like, uh, we're going to do the deep one first. He goes, yeah, I thought we'd start deep, and we'll work our way back up. But um, so my first first trimix dive on the Superior City, I passed 200 feet, which is deeper than I'd ever been, and I still wasn't on the wreck. Um, and at that time, the thing was, is nobody really, you know, I mean, there was all this stuff going around that trimix didn't work, and the deep air guys um, didn't believe in it at all. And uh, I didn't know it worked because when I was out in Long Island, um, we got blown off the deep dive, and I actually did. A trimix dive in uh, 120, which I could do on air any day. So I had never really tried the mix deep. So the Superior City was the first time I did it, and uh, it was pretty amazing. I got down there, and uh, I was feeling really great. So uh, I just took off and explored the wreck by myself. Tina. Now, how interchangeable was uh, trimix? So if if you learned from one person trimix, could you dive with somebody else who had who maybe learned in Florida? Oh sure, sure. The mix is the mix is pretty, you know, it's pretty much the same. There were two places to make tables back then. Um, I believe one was MIG Plan, which we were using, and the other one was Doctor X, which is a program being promoted by uh, Sheck Exley. And we were re- they were DOS programs, and you would run them on a DOS, and you know, on a black and white screen. And uh, I still have one downstairs. I can run it. <laughs> um, and they were pretty crude, but you know, you would just basically go through and type in the mix, no mouse, no mouse or anything like that, just straight commands and that would cut your tables. So, um, and then of course there were no helium analyzers or anything like that. Um, I have an engineering degree, so, um, he glomped onto me to start designing gas because it requires linear algebra to design trimix, which I can do pretty easily. So I was basically designing gases for the shop and, and stuff like that back then. And it was uh, it was really interesting up at Whitefish because it was like di- diving had been created all over again. It was the first time to diving. And there was all these theories going on and all this stuff and some really interesting people. You know, there were probably six or seven at first diving mix up there. The interesting thing about Whitefish is every one of those wrecks up there, like Superior City and 270, have been done by deep air guys. So you have to understand that, you know, they've already been dove and a lot of them have been great stuff had been taken. So these, there were some extreme deep air guys that could do this stuff up there and we're doing it. Um, and then the mix, we came up with mix and, you know, an average diver like me could all of a sudden start going deep. And that's basically what happened. Yeah. But I've heard the stories about how much, you know, you, you miss when you're diving deep air, 
Um, I know there's a story about the guys who were, you know, they're, they're, they're videoing down there on the Kamloops, and they didn't even notice until they were reviewing the video later on that there was a body right there with them, and they never even saw it because they were so narked out down there at around like 255. Oh, the one inside, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the guy inside the engine room. Yeah, I've got, yeah, I've been in there. I've seen and, them. Yeah, they, yeah, you, I, you, yeah. Oh, you're you're you extremely you have extreme tunnel vision on mix or on air, you know. Um, you're you're extremely um, you know deep to do deep air. You have to understand you're going to be impaired. You have to deal with it. Yeah, mm-hmm. Darren. If I might, real quick. Um, I don't want to neglect our uh, chat room. Can I get our uh, what's the uh, chat room number again? Which one is that again? Seven three seven five nine. Seven three seven five nine. Okay, yeah, so I want to get in the there. Room and you've got any questions? We've got. Flyboy Ned, uh, Guest 3, which I'm guessing is probably Mac. We have Scuba Tech. Uh, they're all in there, so maybe they have some questions for Bob. Uh, Bob, are you still uh, diving uh, Trimix, or have you moved to Trimix Rebreather? No, I'm, I'm, I'm still using Open Circuit. I was up in, White, I was up in Lake Superior last week, and I had I – I, we actually had seven days of straight drive, diving, which is unbelievable, and I carried maybe 700 cubic feet of Trimix – it wound up having to blend some more. Oh. <laughs> I went through a thousand cubic feet of Trimix last week, yeah. which is unbelievable. That's more than I've ever done, but wow. it was phenomenal weather. Well, that's that's great. And so you, you must have experienced last year where, or was it last year or the year before, where hydrogen was so hard to come by? Oh, yeah. Well, we, yeah, we can, or you mean helium. Helium, that's what I meant, not hydrogen. Yeah. Yeah, we, we've always, we've got, um, <laughs> um, <sighs> We've always had pretty good access to helium. Um, the, um, Todd, uh, Jeff, and I, for a while, were the, the biggest users of helium in West Michigan. <laughs> so you had you two, and then the rest of the MRI unit. Yeah, so we were locking in the we were locking in volume price. Yeah, I understand it's coming down a little bit now, but for quite some time. They just found a big, big area somewhere I don't know in the world, but uh, South Africa. They say the helium is here forever now. Yeah, at least they for the next 80 to 100 years. Uh, and there, and there's mm-hmm. been helium um, in a lot of the gas fields. It's just that they hadn't gotten around to uh, putting the separators on, so they're just venting it off. Yeah. So there, And, in fact, I think, yeah, to play a little conspiracy theory, I think that there was a few groups who were in, hoping that it would stay high to create a market, then that would justify some investment equipment. But like you said, the, the, I think it was somewhere in Africa they came across a huge reserve, and that's going to take care of things for quite a while. Yeah, I don't remember where it is, but it's like a major a major hit that's all over the cave diving forum. Those guys are crazy about it. Yeah, they were talking about there's enough um, helium there to uh, set up like uh, 1.3 million MRI machines. So I, th- I think I think we're good for a little while now. So. Yeah, well, I, yeah, yeah, there was some talk about uh, some of the. Uh, hospitals were trying to restrict the use because they thought that diving was just a a waste of helium. Yeah, you, yeah, you have to. I don't know. I it it, it comes and goes, you know. But um, but you can well, still get it. It's just a matter of price. It was pretty high the last couple of years, and I hear it's going down. Yeah, well, say. Another reason we have quite through. a bit of it in the bank. I yeah. breathed down a bit of it this year, but well, I'm looking at it. That's one more reason to go with rebreather and be a little more efficient there. But 
I've always been fascinated with rebreathers, but I was always afraid one of my open circuit habits would kill me, and so I haven't been, been all that quick. So, um, yeah, a lot easier, I think, if you haven't done a lot of open circuit over the years. Yeah, I understand that the, the longer you've been doing open circuit, the harder it is to master a closed circuit or a rebreather there. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm sure, but, you know, I mean, the, the, you know, as much as you dive, you know, it'd be something overcome, but I'm sure you could if you wanted to, so... I have a I have a good sack rate that helps me. You know, I don't use a lot of gas, so technically it's still viable for me to go circuit. Mm-hmm. And I really don't need to do some of the extreme dives they're doing on rebreathers anymore. I'm getting too old. Yeah, I I I've dove I've dove with Bob Underhill and uh Bob will dive commonly on a HP one on a high pressure one hundred and I'll have my L P ninety five doubles there and Bob will outlast me. So <laughs> Yeah. I think that's saying something about your your breathing, Kevin. Oh no, I was talking about Bob's breathing. Nothing to do with mine. So. No? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's so actually I, an escape training. You know, they I, teach you how to get your your trim right and how to move really easy in the water without very little effort. Yeah, Bob, Bob's pretty phenomenal on air. I'm 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 like average on air. You know, I'm only a third year diver. I do have 312 dives on me now. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, still, I'm only a third-year diver. I'm only, at this point, starting to really, you know, start paying attention to, to my sac rates and try, trying to improve uh, yeah. sac rate surface air consumption rates. Um, working on that. I'm not I'm not at Bob's level. I'll get there eventually, yeah. maybe. Well, I, I think, Kevin, you're probably at that point where that starts to improve because I was the same way. I would I could breathe down an 80 in no time at all, and then it, it seemed like within a couple weeks at some point, you know, probably about the third year that it yeah, – I. I don't know if I figured it out or or maybe just decided I didn't need air anymore, but it, it improved. You tend to struggle. The problem is new divers tend to struggle in the water, and they, they kind of spend a lot of time fighting their position and fighting, you know. And, again, what you learn is you learn to, like, get your balance right all the time to the point where you're never struggling. You're basically just floating and kind of doing an easy kick, and you move forward without any effort. That's how you go through a wreck without without stirring it up. I mean, you get in there, you have your buoyancy perfect, and you just take real easy little kicks or whatever, and you just float through. Yeah. Someday, working on it there. So what's the the wreck, Bob, that you haven't found that you would love to, to see? I don't think I have any anymore since the Michigan. The Michigan was the one for me. Um, and so pretty much everything's been on a bonus for me, and I don't really think about it anymore. I just kind of dive. I mean, you know, um, I do, you know, I, you know, there's some stuff. I mean, the Chikor is out there, but I think it's too deep. Um, they've searched out, they're searching now in, in uh, ROV territory for stuff. But uh, um, I kind of still like uh, Lake Superior because there's no muscle on the stuff and the paint's still on the wrecks and it looks like the ways I remember it when I when I first started out. Do you know how much searching has been done in Lake Superior? Um, not well, quite a bit. The museum's been doing quite a bit, and they found quite a bit. Um, um, Daryl up at the museum told me he's got I forget 14 hits he hasn't put a diver down on. So they mm-hmm. they got a lot of stuff, but um, the way the museum works is they don't want divers to touch anything. They want to be able to go out and see the wreck exactly the way it is have nothing disturbed and do a full survey and then do drawings and everything else, you know. So they're not 
they're not into it for the uh, enjoyment of diving, you know. And if you dive for them, and I've done a little bit of stuff for them, you, uh, you, they don't even want you to disturb the silt down there. They, that's what they tell you. So you got to be pers- pretty much kind of be real quiet about what you do and just kind of go and take pictures or do whatever. No, but that was mostly in the, in the whitefish area. Do you know, have they, have they searched twice? Yeah, that's the, the whitefish. Has there been much searching the way over by the, uh, like, Pictured Rocks area, Munising area, do you know, or Keweenaw? I don't think so. That's a long way for the boy to get. The, mm-hmm. the, they're, they're diving, they're searching with a void out of uh, Whitefish Point, Harbor Refuge, and I believe it does 10 miles an hour. They ah. have gone over there. He's been he's been working some projects, and they've got some deep water. They've been doing some deep water projects. They found the Cygnus a few years ago, and that's in about the same depth as the Fitzgerald, about 550 or something like that. And they've got an ROV. They put that down there. Mm-hmm. Um, so. They're, they're they're doing a lot of stuff up there. They're still working at it pretty good, um, and you know they're they're dragging a fish. So, um, but um, white, you know, the Superior is deep. A lot of it, particularly uh, you know offshore, you get you know there's a big flat area. There's a pretty good flat area out there of sand, but then it goes deep. Yeah, I, I was kind of playing with the idea of doing something like what Ross did with Skilligally, where he he looked up an area where that was known for having a lot of wrecks. And he went out there and uh, you know did 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 some side scan. I think with the hummingbird actually out there looking looking for wrecks and came up, and came up with quite yeah, a few. Yeah, they're right there on that shoal. I I kind of wanted to scooter that a few years ago and just mm. you know use light gear and go out and scooter it. They've they've the, the locals have pretty much picked that stuff clean. By the way, there's there's been a lot of local guys that have been out there on those. So I'm not sure you're going to find anything that's new. I was um, thinking like up the, and for the sixties, those guys were out there. <laughs> Well, thing up on Superior though, you have a number of uh, reefs just out in the middle of nowhere. They have they have islands on. Yeah, you know? you're like right. you're like thirty miles offshore. There's a reef, you know, and I mean, if, if it was a bad enough shoal, they put they put a they put a lighthouse on it. You know, twenty miles offshore, there, there must well, be there's a one of in the middle of the lake that they didn't find until I forget when, like 1930 or something. I'm, I'm guessing that, but. You know, they they claim the bannock. You know, the legend is that maybe where the bannock bird did it hit that reef. There's like a big stone reef coming up in the middle of Lake Superior, way out, mm-hmm. right in the shipping lane. And oh, uh, they the know one, where it is now. That's one where they they put but, the lighthouse. It was a real. I short think so. Of, right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that. Yeah. That might be. That might be it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, and I've talked to them, and the guys are like, "Yeah, right. You know, we're going to go out in the Lake Superior." And the Boyd live out there in the middle of the lake for like a year, right? You know, <laughs> it's logistics are crazy to go out and search for that. Well, yeah, and There's, then even if you get, it's a lot of nothing. Well, and there. you know, I, I, I have a hunch there probably is quite a bit off that reef, Bannockburn, or who knows what else down there. Yeah, but yeah, the, I know. But the thing is that you know who, who's who's going to dive it? You know, I mean, I mean, I know that there are guys right. like like you that they'll do it, but it you're, you're talking some real deep water up there. So well, they'll be you putting an ROV down on it, which is you know they're they're like I said they they found God I like I said I think the Clemson is the one they're looking for. I don't think they found the Clemson yet, but. Um, I think the Henry Smith they found, that's another one. They're all deep. They're all like four or 500 feet out there. Um, so they're, they're ROVing them. You know? um, and, you know, and, 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 and for sure, because, I mean, they can put an ROV down for all day, you know, where a diver could spend 10 minutes down there shooting oh, video. You know? Yeah, and you, and you can make a decision because a lot of times you're tethering those and you're able to make a, deci- a decision on what you want to. Video and right, 
yeah, you know, yeah, Daryl's not diving anymore. Daryl, Daryl's running the museum. He actually was on one of the first teams using Trimix on the Ganilda. Um, and he, he shot, they went up there and they got permission from the Canadians and, uh, shot, um, a VHS video, you, you know, back in the nineties. And, uh, I remember him doing it and I'm like, I was totally jealous, man. Like, Oh my God, what do I have to do to get on the Ganilda team? You know? And, uh, of course they're diving it all the time now, you know, they're taking charters and stuff and I've been on it and it's phenomenal. But the Ganilda was one of those, that was one of the wrecks that made the point for mixed gas because the Ganilda was absolutely lethal on air. And if you've ever been on it, you'd know why, because, um, it's in the, it's in the shadow of the shoal and not only is it deep, it's absolutely dark. And, uh, so if you're on air, you're like, you, you're just totally, you know, you're stoned and now you're in the, in a really dark, <laughs> on a really dark dive. Um, so all of a sudden the guys had helium and they started doing the Ganilda and doing survey and all this other stuff. And, um, it just opened the whole, the whole world up. Yeah. For our listeners, the, uh, Ganilda is a, uh, Ship that sunk 1911 up in the uh, eastern end of, you no, know, western end of Lake Superior. Uh, apparently, it hit a reef. Uh, reef was only th- three feet deep, and uh, when they pulled it off the reef, it quickly sunk to 270 feet. Um, I'm seeing pictures here. I'm looking at GreatLakesUnderwater.com. Marvelous, marvelous pictures with searchlights with the glass still in them. You know, windows still with the glass in them. Tables with the plate still on them. Uh, you know, you don't get any more intact than this. This is a marvelous wreck. I heard that uh, Jacques Cousteau dove it, dove it and claimed it was the uh, best freshwater shipwreck in the world. So, yeah, this is uh, something to aspire to. I'm nowhere near ready for that, but uh, I'm sure some of our listeners are. <laughs> well, it was the biggest, it was the best yacht in the New York Yacht Club in 1900. It's a, it's a steam yacht. It's got It's got gold leaf on the bow, gold leaf on the stern. Um, the only damage is the Canadians were were dragging, trying to pull stuff off it, so they damaged a lot of the superstructure with hooks. But other than that, it's pretty intact. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it's one of those wrecks where, like, you know, you're down there, and everywhere you turn, you're shooting a shot. Like, wow, look at that. Wow, look at that. Um, the main cabin's got a, a piano and a fireplace in it. The main salon sitting there. Yeah, very, very impressive ship. These are the reasons I want that I want to go tech is to see ships like this. And the fact that, that you've been there, I am very jealous, Bob. I am very jealous. But I know yeah, I know you paid your dues and you've been there for a while. Yeah, it doesn't yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean I I got to it late actually, you know. Um just I think I was there in twenty ten and I you know, I've done four dives on it. It's a small wreck, so it's pretty easy to cover a lot of it. There's places I could go, but the Canadians don't want you to go. They don't want you to go inside, so um, it's well, I, technically illegal to go inside. Well, I've heard it's pretty but, cramped, too, to go inside there. It's not something you really want to be with a set of doubles on your back. Yeah, well, I know somebody has, but that's, yeah. you know, well, I told yeah, him but, he was my hero. But you've, you know, you've told me some stories, though, about some of the things that the uh, guys would do long before Patty was around, uh, you know, some of these guys... Uh, you know, I know we have some listeners who are instructors, and you and you might want kind of want to cover your ears for the, this portion here. Um, you know, Bob, you told me about a guy who used to dive with Jack out there on the, and you're diving the Ironsides, and there was a certain kind of route that you named after Jack just because of what he would do. Can you, can you tell me, tell us a little bit more about that? 
Well, yeah, well, yeah, Jack, Jack was one of the guys in my club. Um, and, uh, he tended to be inside a lot, but we all, we all went inside those days, a lot more than they do now. Um, and, uh, Everybody had a way of working the wreck, and uh, Jack would like to go in as close to the bow or the stern as he could and just work his way totally through the wreck. So uh, anytime I go through a wreck from the bow to stern inside, I call it the, the Jack route. Um, and, uh, but the the guy I dealt with, we would tend to stay to the rail and then do forays inside, and then maybe one of us would stand outside and shine a light um, at the, if it was too tight for two divers and that and just go poking in and moving and moving that way. But Jack liked to just go inside. He had a really big set of doubles back then in the days when most people are diving 70 because he had a set of steel one or aluminum 100. And so with a bit, with the early, we call them the Benjamin valve, the, the early isolation valve. And uh, so he always had plenty of air. That's the way he looked at it. But, uh, you know, I, I was on the Cedarville couple of years ago and the thing's full of silt in the old days that wouldn't happen because everybody was always crawling inside it people just aren't they don't they're not like the old great lakes guys they don't crawl around inside anymore and i mean they would crawl because the places are tight and they were basically stirring it up and knocking silt out of it so one of the things about well i was just gonna say one of the things about being the first guy on a wreck is uh they're usually pretty silty and pretty nasty. Um, the wrecks that have been dove a lot are a lot friendlier because the divers, particularly if they don't have good technique and have been can kick the silt off them, they're usually a little cleaner. Well, I think that you're just seeing the difference because, you know, now most divers going through a certification agency, whether it be PADI or NAWI or SSRI, um, you know, they, they really, the instructors really, really do push on us recreational divers that, you don't go inside the wreck without additional training. You know, that's the domain right. of, of tech divers, guys with double tanks, special, you know, special equipment, you know, and, you know, 90, what, 98% of divers out there are recreational divers. And, you know, we all see the stories and, you know, what, what, what the media hypes up about it and all, and we just don't really want to, you know, be a statistic. You know, um, that's, that's not a pleasant way to go. And it's really, I remember from my, you know, Patty instruction. It's really drilled into you that you don't go in there. You know, the, 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 the you know this basic class is not to get you in there. That's the, that's to get you down there and look in. Yeah, so I think that that's the, the difference you're just seeing is that fewer divers are doing penetration dives. But I, I think for good reason. You know, and keep in mind the, the stuff that Bob is talking about with with Jack with the Jack route. You know, these these are cool stories, but this is not behavior that we're recommending that our listeners go out and do either. So uh, I I think also Kevin, part of it is that wrecks that were penetration dives aren't anymore. Uh, you know, you've got the iron sides that's completely open now. Material service yeah. barge over in Chicago, I mean, while well, that technically may be a, pe- a penetration, that's all open. You can swim out any place you're at. So at least down here, we're not seeing many many opportunities. I, you know, I think uh, the one that you dove a few weeks ago, the Thomas Hume, was I think one of the few that are down here that you can do a penetration on. Yeah, it's pretty open. You know, you, it's pretty hard to get lost in Hume. Yeah, the, the, the Hume, you know, you, you have multiple exits there. It's uh, you have a lot of ambient light down there. Um, again, I'm not recommending it for our listeners. You know, I I did do a penetration on it there. Um, it's kind of a, a glorified swim through. You know, I mean, you're really not in that much of an enclosed area, at least not in the section I was in. I did not go into any of the rooms. I basically dropped down in one of the, I think, where a cabin had been. Dropped down there, swam down the hallway, 
and found that I couldn't quite make it out through the trusses in the stern. Because I was, you know, doubles in a in a deco bottle. So I came back out the way I went. You know, there were quite a few ways of getting out of there if you wanted to. So then when I was on the Vienna uh, last week, you know, that was, I didn't even attempt the penetration on that. I understand that's a really cool wreck to, to, to go in. And Bob's been inside that one numerous times. But uh, that's just something beyond my level. Bob, I understand you've you been on the Vienna. You understand, guys like me and Jack, we had all the classes there were. We had basic school, you know. We had everything. That was it, mm-hmm. you know. And after that, it was all a matter of, you know, you were in a club and you learned to do what you did in the club. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not at all faulting you, Bob. I know I'm just saying that the thing, things oh, are a little different. You know, things are a little, little different today. You know, yeah, I, you know, I'm sure that you were as safe as you could be, and, um, you know, I, I'm not at all faulting you. I just don't you know, saying that. Well, I didn't think you were, but I'm just saying, you know, yeah, but I, I, it was that, a different world. Yeah, wasn't that some of the the, the challenge and enjoyment of it was the. You know, the exploration to be one of the first to be able to do that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, that's that's right. I mean, one of the guys that we dove with was a commercial diver, and, you know, so a lot of the stuff back then ran under the commercial way, you know. So, um, you know, they're, 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 the commercial divers have a different way of doing things. So, so you know, we adopted a lot of the commercial stuff, um, and uh, they it, it, it just, you know, there's a lot of creative stuff going on. You know, and that's one um, of the, the, the reasons why we advocate people to join a dive club. Uh, you know, when you go and you get taught by an instructor, you really don't have a lot of time with that instructor. What three three hours, six hours, maybe in the water, and then they're they're sending you off on your own. But with a dive yeah. club, you're diving with somebody who's you know you're you're on dive number eight, but the the mentor that you're with is on dive three thousand and eighty. Uh, there's a lot that you can learn. I belong to the Grand Valley Dive Club. Um, next year is their 50th year in existence, and it's going to be their last year. They're going to disband the club because the club is pretty much gone and dead. But they never, ever killed a diver in all the years we were there. Um, and they and a lot of the stuff they were doing was pretty much on the leading edge. At that time, they were, you know, we were diving the iron sides in two-foot visibility or 18-inch visibility, you know, on weekends, coming out on the, the tug, the Arbutus. And those guys, um, you know, they would all, they had a, there were two Paddy Master instructors in the club. Um, one of them was one of my buddies. And, um, and they would, they pretty much could evaluate each diver and they would, they would definitely pair, um, the more experienced people up with a diver they were worried about, you know. So. Now um, you mentioned. Kind of the way they did it. You mentioned two feet on the iron sides. I think, mm-hmm. I think the worst visibility I've seen on the iron sides might be. Fifteen feet. Uh, oh, the iron sides. The iron sides used to make men. <laughs> I mean, they, they, you know, we used to try to dive it in the fall because that was when the winds would switch out of the east a little more, and we might get the river off it. Um, and what I remember, the guy I dove with was uh, this Dave Groover. He died in '85. He was like a brother to all of us. He was actually in the down in South America on a treasure hunt, and he uh, froze to death in the mountains from exposure. But I remember one time, uh, you know, we we generally didn't dive it in the middle of the summer. The visibility was guaranteed to be zero. Um, And I remember one time I was, and I had had, uh, zip up the crotch unit suit, a set of steel 72 doubles, um, one regulator, one SVG, and that's how you dove, and uh, with a backpack. 
and uh, they would be full and ready for Dave to call me anytime because Dave would call me and tell me we're going to dive the Ironsides, and I'd be down at the dock at Fricky on Sunday morning. And I remember one time in um, in um, July he calls me, and he's like, uh, we're going to do the Ironsides tomorrow. He come? And I'm like, yeah, but isn't the visibility going to be bad? He goes, oh, there's this guy in from California. He's telling us we're a bunch of pussies, so I'm putting him on the Ironsides. <laughs> and they almost killed a sheriff diver one day, so they stopped doing it. <laughs> That's the way those guys were. I mean, when my initiation in the club was for me to go out and do a night dive on the Ironsides of Dave, and I had a great dive, and they figured out I was okay. I mean, you know, the rest of them actually stayed on the boat. Nobody else wanted to go in the water, and Dave took me down, and I did the dive. And after that, they thought, oh, okay, you're okay. Yeah, and this is a time when the visibility was so bad. I've heard a story about a guy dropping in on the Ironsides and finding himself actually going down the stack. And didn't yeah, realize that that was who? Jim Hayswinkle. He died a okay. couple years ago. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah, but you got visibility where you could just drop right down inside inside a smokestack and not even realize you're there until you're down on the firebox. And, uh, well, one so. of the one of the times I was following the deck up front and I'm I'm swimming I'm swimming all of a sudden I stop so I reach up and I realize I'm inside the wreck. You know, I didn't know it. I'm just looking down and there's. 18 inches of visibility, you know, we were buying the brightest lights we could get, which were a joke compared to what you can buy today. So, you know, basically you put your hands above your head and start backing up until you can find open water. So, yeah, it was, you know, that, that right could reach out and touch you. You could be, you could be swimming along and the next thing you know, you're hung up, something would hang you up. And you'd have to stop. And, well, um, it, it does have to have the, uh, have to be the wreck that I consider as the most, leaders on fishing leaders now yeah oh yeah yeah we carried sharp knives on that one yeah i'm seeing some of the uh, fishing line today you, even a good sharp knife doesn't cut it uh you know I, yeah we i use scissors I, we were i was down there early spring like back in april and uh we encountered a lot of the uh oh it's actually yeah. it's a braided copper it, it looks like steel but it's actually braided copper and my knife wouldn't cut it my buddy's knife wouldn't cut it and that got me kind of reading up on knives because I thought I had a decent knife. And, you know, uh, I recommend to our listeners that you uh, read up on stainless steel, what's out there. And I can tell you that so many of the dive knives we buy, you know, basically they're designed to look good in the display case, not designed to cut well or to, or to be bragging rights. Yeah, I have a titanium knife. Well, you know, a titanium knife, it's a very soft material. It might I have one, too. It doesn't cut very well, does it? <laughs> no, it doesn't. No, they, they, you know, it, it's brain. I have, an, I have a titanium knife. Yeah, it, it just about floats. It, it's so light, but the, the, the material is so soft that the first time you use it to cut a piece of paper, you lose your edge. It's gone. And oh, it, it's easy to sharpen, but the edge is gone the first time you need it. So, you know, t- take a look at some of the, the better grades of stainless steel. You know, here in freshwater, we don't truly even need stainless steel. You can actually get away with the, with the blade with a, a lot more carbon in it. Um, you know, the one I'm using has a uh, 440C stainless, which is better than most. Um, you know, and actually, it's a pretty cheap knife. You know, uh, think about it. Uh, you know, your dive knife. That's something which I've I've only been diving three years, and I've probably lost four of them. Um, I'm not going to spend any big money on a dive knife. You know, I can find a good, you know, 440C stainless blade. For you know, less than thirty dollars, okay. And now it doesn't look real pretty. And yeah, I've got to put some oil on it and hone it once in a while. But uh, that will cut through you know the steel fishing line out there pretty decently. So 
So I've gone to scissors. So you, have you have you have you you uh, encountered the steel fishing line with your with your scissors? Yeah, they seem to cut everything. Um, I don't get hung up much anymore with the visibility and the cave training. I pretty much have a pretty good position in the water where I'm at. And usually, um, you know, even if you are hung up, I don't recommend trying to cut yourself out. I recommend trying to drop and back up. And usually you'll unhang yourself, you know. Um, usually if you feel your, you know, again, you know, I'm, I'm usually floating pretty easy. And if I feel myself hung, I'll stop and then, I'll try to let out a breath and drop away and then back up a little bit with a couple of backwards fin kicks. And usually that'll get you out before you get too tangled up and crazy. You know? So I, I haven't had a cut out of anything in years, um, frankly. I mean, I, I cut lines and do some stuff. And, you know, if I'm working on buoys and stuff, the scissors work with that. The big line, you got to use a knife. The scissors won't work on a, on a good size. Well, everyone, just make sure you keep your knife in your in your triangle. You want it someplace between what is it, the two points in your rib cage and your chin? Is that where it is, Darren? What's what's the, what's the triangle exactly? I, for your... I I believe that's what they teach. The my my thing is have a, have more than one knife and have it in places you can get to. I I like to have mine on my. I have one of mine flater uh, on the on the hose because I I I'm always able to get there. And then uh, a good another good spot is like on the inside of the leg. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I usually carry one in my pocket, in my suit. I, you know, if I, I have pockets, so I'll usually put it in a pocket. Then I usually just clip the uh, scissors on my harness. Yeah, I started. I was carrying this uh, these pliers with a carbide blade, which really did cut through the uh, steel wire nicely. I actually experimented using them on downrigger cable, which is a 150 pound test, and I cut through them real nicely. And I and I do keep them. So I do keep them on me. Only problem with them is is that well they're only really good for wire they're not really going to cut much else but they sure do cut yeah, the wire yeah you're not going to cut line yeah the the thing that still makes me nervous and I I just avoid them is when you come on an object and it's just covered in fishing net and sometimes in the St Joe River when you're out there in the channel some of the the pilings will have I guess they oh that's on them they yeah used to have, uh, they used to to uh, run fishing nets through the river. And they'll be all tangled in that, and I just look at that, and I just see an entanglement, like you wouldn't believe. And I, I, they had a nice glass float on one once, and me and my dive buddy, we pulled out our dive knives that we had recently gotten because you needed them for advanced open water, and we started sawing on these, uh, uh, on these nets. And after five minutes, and only being maybe a quarter of the way through, we we gave up. Yeah, nets are tough. You want to? Yeah, I always. Yeah, you need to stay away from nets. Um, they're they're tough. They can be really tough, particularly yeah. the edges of them where they put yeah. the cable through. Yeah, right. And that and that's where we were. I mean, they get the float off. That's where it was at. And that just that, yeah, that they, gave they me a healthy on. respect of best chances. Just avoid it. Yeah, they. Yeah, usually usually I just float around them. Again, if, you know, now you have pretty good visibility. So you know, those were the days of old bad vis and all that. Now you have good visibility. You can see see where you're going and just stay away from everything. Pretty much what I do. I try to be aware of where I am and where I'm going to be. Well, I don't, you know. In the years you've been diving, Bob, what what is the a significant change? What's one of the biggest changes that you've seen? Um, well, the gears big change, obviously, all the time. You know, um, I just. Uh, Mixed gas was a major change, you know. Rebreathers obviously have changed some, but probably not as much as gas. Mixed gas cr- created diving all over again in a whole new world. 
you know. So that was the best, I think. Um, and I remember at the time, I, I, I was always, you know, one of the things is at my age, when I started diving, all the, the diving was really pretty new, and all the guys had started it were still alive, and they were still around. And I remember when Mixed Gas came out, my whole feeling was, and one of the reasons was that this was like diving re- again, just like the beginning back in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. So I would say that's this change. Computers are a good thing. That made it practical to double the depth that many were able to dive. Yeah, definitely. You know, you can, you know, you keep your head on straight. Um, yeah, 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 that's right. It was, it was practical. At first, nobody believed it. <laughs> but, uh, or, well, a lot of people, but I shouldn't say no. But, you know, the deep air guys, you know, they were basically saying, well, you always get narked. I don't get narked. You know, a lot of guys didn't feel they had any narcosis. That's ridiculous. Everybody has narcosis. Now, do you think it's a case of that these guys have just gotten accustomed to dealing with the narcosis? Um, sometimes you're so hammered you don't know it. <laughs> um, you know, the commercial divers talk about the guys are down there and they got a video camera on them. And they're asking them what they're doing. And the guy's like, oh, I'm cutting. I'm doing all this. I'm doing all this. And the guy's literally sitting on the pipe doing nothing. And they, and as the commercial guys will tell you that they can hear the helium coming down the pipe. So as soon as they're not doing what they're supposed to at 200 feet and they're whacked out of their mind, the, uh, they'll, they'll shove heliox down the pipe. He said you can hear it. You can hear it from the sound that they're giving it to you. Hmm. So a lot of it, you know, um, you can zone out too. Um, you know, you, if, if you exert yourself too much at, at depth, you can, you literally, um, will lose awareness. You'll still be moving and doing, you know, People when they're people when they're not when they're knocked out and gone they will they'll still be kicking they'll still be diving but they'll have no awareness of where they are or what they're doing. Yeah, we, we we've heard stories of people who have gotten who have gotten knocked out and they'll be on videotape and you, they get to the surface and you ask them to describe the dive and they'll describe a quarter of the dive and not and miss a whole section. Right. I had five. I've got five lost minutes on the John B. Cowell twenty years. <laughs> where like I woke up and I'm like on a different part of the wreck and I don't know how I got there. Mm-hmm. So um, I happened to be moving a line and I exerted myself. I was actually, I've actually retied it. The job was for me to retie a line and my wife was with me and she said, I looked fine. And mm-hmm. I was swimming around and I retied the line and the effort from doing that caused me to zone in. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, that was probably in the late 90s. But, um, you know, yeah, it's uh, it's it's dangerous. Um, you know, and, uh, you, uh, you, you can, you know, you have to learn, you have to have your habits to, I, I'm, I'm not going to talk about what you have to do to do it because most of it, it's a skill that I do know, but it's a skill that most of us won't share anymore with anybody. Yeah, it's something I, mean, I can do, but if I can get helium, I'll use helium every time. Yeah. That seems to be the way, well, the way to go. Well, uh, Bob, we certainly appreciate you coming on the show. Is there anything that you'd like to plug? Uh, any websites or any projects? No, I'm basically, I'm the last of the amateurs. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I just die for my own enjoyment. Now, <laughs> something my I, wife is an electrical engineer, you know. Yeah, I, I, I have seen that uh, you might have been involved with is a lot of the preserves hand out these pamphlets uh, at, at events. Uh, Correct. Didn't you have some involvement with with the creation of those? My wife does. She's a graphic designer. She's created them. 
so um yeah she's she's created the pamphlets the preserves and uh done the website for the preserves i believe yeah they they're the ones that we've we've been handing out um yeah do a lot yeah, of shows she but uh she created that. I, I believe she did the website for the preserve too. I don't know how involved she is now, but she designed it a mm-hmm. few years ago, I believe. Yeah, she's a freelance graphic designer. She works out of the house here. But you know, um, she kind of does her own thing. To be honest, yeah, I'm not <laughs> really all that involved in it. <laughs> well, now she's does she still dive? But I know that she was a diving with you quite a bit at one time. What's what's her um, diving music? She's she's had two operations on her back, and uh, she's not. Um, she likes to snorkel. In fact, that's what I'm supposed to be doing over Labor Day is taking her up and letting her do some. Um, she snorkeled the wreck you you and I talked about up at Whitefish last month. Um, okay. Ten for water. So mm-hmm. um, I don't. Yeah, I don't know that she'll ever go water again. Well, no. She I... was. She was. Jan was. Jen never used helium, and she was extremely good on air. She's probably well, got. Oh, I don't know, ten, fifteen dives on the John B. Cole. Well, I know you guys. I know you guys are up in the uh, UP quite a bit. Uh, t- uh, take her over and snorkel the uh, the Bermuda over there in Munising. She, she she'd love that. If she hasn't already. Yeah, we we actually did that back uh, quite a few years ago. Now we actually were over there doing that. Um, um, but yeah, so I I don't know exactly where I'm going to take her, but um, she. Uh, no. Yeah, she misses it. So, you know, Yika, you know, that's kind of she hangs out with Yika. Yika knows Jan more than she knows me. So. <laughs> um, but she talks to Yika all the time. But um, Yeah, they, they, they probably get together and but, talk about you. That's the, way it, that's the way it goes, you know. So. Yeah, probably, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think that's true. But, yep. uh, yeah, she, she, did, she was up there. She was up there diving with me in the late 90s when all the action was happening at Whitefish and you know, like talking to all the charter boat captains and hanging out at the Yukon with them and stuff. So she has a lot of good memories. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, I, I always enjoyed diving with her. Um, um, it was just in recent years I got on some of these other projects with other people. But it was you know, it was always fun to just dive with Jan. And she's been on the Osborne and the on the Mather and all those. Um, and, uh, well, well, keep 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 taking her out there. I mean, uh, snorkeling's snorkeling's very underrated. You know, there's a lot you can see with snorkeling. Uh, there are a number of yeah, no, I, that. Um, I'm sure you know more than I do. To, uh, it's hard to take her snorkeling when I'm packing trimix, but yeah. <laughs> well, you know, so she's up up top and you're down below. You know, I mean. Uh, yeah, well, she yeah. don't like the snorkel, but she can't see the bottom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, hey, the the Gerardo free dive. You know uh, what those guys are doing free diving these days is oh. truly incredible. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, I used to be a pretty good free diver, but those yeah. I, I could, but, you know, back in the day, that was the other thing. We were all free divers. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, so but what's your what's your opinion though when they're free diving? You know, you see these guys going for the records. Going, I guess the record is like. 203 meters, but they're using all these assists. Yeah. You know, they they got a sled that yanks yeah. them down on the balloon, a balloon that pulls them up. I mean, that's isn't that unlimited. Cheating? Yeah, <laughs> they got a 20 foot fin. They're swimming. They're still, they're still, they're still beyond anything I could ever do. I might have been able to make 50 feet, you know, mm-hmm. in, in my youth. But well, there's 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 some good video on YouTube about the free divers and some of the, you know mm-hmm. some of these guys are out there diving the same wrecks that we are. I you know there's a there's a video I've been well, doing. Well, diving in the caves too. 
They're going down in the caves. The cave free diving in the caves. Yeah. I mean, yeah. No, no thanks. No thank you. Uh-uh. No. They don't I'm go too far in, but no? they get in. No. I don't, even, I don't want to hear about that. No. I'm, I'm getting false for just thinking about yeah. it. No, did I say no? Yeah. Yeah. That, that free diving fascinates me, and I always liked it. But, you know, that's like, uh, it's like whenever you watch a video, it's like I always hold my breath and I think I can make it like 10 feet and I'm already breathing again. I could do two lengths of a pool when I was young, swimming with no fins or anything, just swimming. But, uh, you know, but I probably couldn't make half the width rate. I might make the I hope I can make it, but I don't, I doubt I can make the length once, you know. <laughs> I, I, can, I can make the length and you are... Twice as good on air as I am, Bob. So I'm sure. You yeah, can. I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, yeah, it's hard to say. <laughs> but yeah, I I could do two links when I you know that we spent you know I I used to teach uh, assist with the the patty and open water instructors back in the 90s 80s I'm sorry 80s and uh, you know none of us would ever touch a tank when we were in the pool and the tanks for the students. I mean, everything we did, we did holding our breath, you know, that was part of the game. That was part of the thing, you know, so an instructor never had a tank on back in the He was free diving. If you put the tanks out, you'd free dive out. You'd never breathe off them. You'd stick the tanks down. You'd do it all breath hold, you know? So we'd spend a lot of time breath holding in the pool and just doing stuff like that. Um, but I remember one time we were, uh, I remember one time we were, uh, we were doing checkup dives in the lake north of Michigan or north of Grand Rapids, and uh, they wanted me to retrieve the float. The float was out there, and it was—I knew where it was. It was tied to a, a stump, which was in like I don't know, 30, 35 feet of water, you know. And I had—I had a dry suit. I asked one of the students if I could borrow—I um, could borrow his wetsuit jacket, and because uh, I wanted to go out and retrieve the float, I didn't want to put all my scuba gear on it. So I grabbed a mask and pins and his wetsuit jacket, and the guy says, you'll never make it. It's in 35 feet of water. Like, well, number one, it's got a line on it. You go hand over hand down. So so I just went out and took a breath and crawled down there and unhooked, you know, unwrapped it from the stump and picked it and came back up. The guys were just laughing. I said, you know, don't ever tell Bob you can't do any. <laughs> but, but, you know, but uh, I, I don't know. I'd probably be dead if I tried that today. Hard to say. <laughs> All right, very cool stuff. Very cool stuff. Well, I do know we have to do scoop in the news yet. Um, Bob, it's been great having you on. I mean, uh, good hearing your stories, good hearing your perspective, good to hear about the, the, the finds you've been involved with. This is very cool stuff. This is all the stuff that us as recreational divers, we aspire to. We, we, we hope to get there someday. We probably won't, but it's good to hear about it from a guy, from a guy who has been there. It's great. Well, you know, um, um, I basically was a guy that showed up. That's all it was. Yeah. Woody Allen says 80% of it is showing up, and that's basically what I did. I showed up. So yeah, I think you that's sh- my mostly talent. Yep, well, you showed up. Show, showing up at the right time counts for something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Being in the right place, you know, with the right people, I guess. So, well, so. Bob, it's been great having you on. Um, thanks, thanks for being here. Thank you much. Oh, you're welcome. Take care. Thanks. We'll, right, we'll take talk care. to you later. Right. Yep, bye. Well, we certainly appreciate having Bob come on the, sh- the program today. Uh, excellent stories. I can I can see why you recommended having him come on. Well, you know, I 
haven't been diving with Bob for that long. You know, I, I've been I've been friends with with his wife on Facebook, chit chatting here and there, and uh, she's been implying for a while that Bob and I should dive together. And well, she seems like a pretty smart gal, so I took her up on it, and he took her up on it, and um, we've had a few dives together. And he, he's he's a good guy, you know. I've learned a lot from him, and he's he's been there, you know. Uh, you know, it's really good to hear his perspective, and I, I'm glad you asked. What has what have you seen change in the time of diving? You know, that was you know between the, the trimix and other things he's seen. Um, you know, a guy could write books. I'm sure. I'm sure he could. And and some changes are so slow. They're you know maybe at a particular moment you don't realize a change, and others have been uh, quite uh, rapid. You know, relatively speaking. I mean, I'm I'm kind of interested to hear that. Somebody says that just from 2005 to now, how much clearer the lake has been. For me, my whole time scuba diving, we've had zebra mussels. So uh, I, I didn't have enough perspective to understand if it was weather that was making things clear or if it was a, a, a trend. But if you've been diving since the 60s and the visibility's only improved in the last 10 years, it, it gives you a solid fact for that. And then equipment, even though we have, I have seen a lot with rebreathers, uh, for me, it's been the dive lights. You know, I can remember five years ago it was HID and spending $600 for a dive light, and now you can get a, a little handheld LED that's as bright as that $600 dive light, you know, from six or seven years ago. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah, always interesting to, to, to talk to some of these experienced people and, and hear what's, what has really changed. Lot of good information there. Okay, well, we're we're running a little short in time, and I don't want to cut any of the interview out. So we're gonna do a, an abbreviated version of Scoop of the News. So I'll let you have the honors, Kevin, of picking a couple articles from the list. Uh, are there any? Is there anything that you wanted to make sure that we covered tonight? Uh, the the balance we can just add to the next week's and cover then. Well, you know, I definitely want to talk about the new shipwreck they found in Lake Ontario, but that's kind of like the cream of the crop. No, I, I, that's fine. Let's go ahead and talk about that. That's also going to be of interest to our listeners. So I think you're talking about, the, is that the Hamilton? The uh, Washington there. Washington. Why did I say Hamilton? Or do I have a different wreck? Um, no, it's the, the link you have here, I'm sure, is about the Washington. The one, the one in Lake Ontario, the one yeah, that it's, was it's just... Washington. It's Washington. It sank in the storm of... 1803, and they're considering it to be one of the oldest discovered shipwrecks. We know there's some older ones. Uh, it's in the there. Hamilton. Yeah. It's in the Hamilton headlines. Is the yeah, it's in the URL, and I'm kind of puzzled why that was. But it's the second oldest confirmed shipwreck in the Great Lake, American-built, Canadian-owned sloop that sank in Lake Ontario more than 200 years ago. It has been found by a team of underwater explorers, the three-member Western New York-based team said it discovered the shipwreck early this summer in deep water off Oswego in the central New York. Uh, images captured by the remotely operated vehicle confirmed that it is the Washington, which sank in 1803. This is according to Jim member, uh, to team member Jim Kennedy. This is one very special. We don't get too many like this, said Kennard, uh, who, who along with Roger, Roger Pulowski and Roland Clip Stevens, has found numerous shipwrecks in Lake Ontario on the waterways. The Sloop Washington was built in Lake Erie in Pennsylvania in 1798. It was used to transport people and goods between western New York, Pennsylvania, and Ontario, and it was a place on skids and hauled by oxen teams across Niagara Isthmus to Lake Ontario in 1802 after being sold to Canadian merchants. 
The 53-foot-long ship was carrying at least five people in a cargo of merchandise, including goods from India, when it set sail from Kingston, Ontario, for its home in Niagara, Ontario, on November 6, 1803. The vessel was caught in a fierce storm and sank. Three crew members and two merchants were on the sloop. All aboard died, according to Kennard. Contemporary records said portions of the cargo and pieces of the ship were found the following day or near Oswego. The Washington is the oldest commercial shipping vessel found in the Great Lakes, and only sloop known to have sailed Lakes Erie, Ontario, uh, Kennard said. Single-masted sloops were replaced in the early 19th century by two- and three-masted schooners, which were much easier to sail. Since there are no known drawings of the Washington, the sloop's discovery, which helped maritime historians learn about the design and constructions of this type of shipping vessel in the Great Lakes between American Revolution and the War of 1812, every shipwreck offers something different and adds to our knowledge base, Soden said. And it's it's in a remarkable condition for the age when you look at yeah, that we're, photo. We're, we're seeing the, a mast still standing here. I yes. mean, uh, that's rare. Now, this sounds like it's very deep, and this group is being very tight-lipped about the location. Um, but all the pictures we're looking at, I mean, there's been a, several pictures been floating on the Internet on this one here, and it has ambient light down there. And, in fact, enough ambient light you can even see a shadow cast here and there. Yeah, so, so uh, that, that may, that's making me think, you know, and, and this is all amateur with Photoshop today. Uh, there's a lot you can do with light levels. But my gut instinct says about 180 feet uh, based on the lighting conditions I've seen in the photos. Uh, but a uh, beautiful shipwreck. Uh, they had one photo that showed the doors. Uh, they had the, the cargo was still was still visible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you might be right on that, that 180. Um, you know, I'm thinking because they're, they're being so quiet about the location, you know, it's probably in a, in a spot where um, not – extremely far out of sport range so that they're probably concerned about you know other people you know going out and you know looters and um people that don't respect and um eventually it's one of those things it's like all activities once somebody finds something that seems like everybody does so it won't be a secret for long but there's at least a few they had a few years head start to where if there's any particular research they want to know before people get in there uh, they've got a nice time to be able to do it. And the fact that it's in Canada, because I know Canada is, is not nearly as tolerant as the U.S. is and being able to get on racks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, this is a wonderful find. I mean, um, they've been down there for over, over 200 years. Um, still got the mass standing on it. Still has a cargo in it. Um, unfortunately, it might quite possibly have some of the casualties on it. Um, Did, I, I didn't see anything in the article Do you, uh, where... Were there any indications? I mean, the condition of the cargo indicates that if there was somebody below decks, they would still be below decks. Yeah, that would be my impression. That's just something that comes to my mind. It's you know, you always wonder about you know the losses, and uh, you know, as a diver, you know, we're always concerned. I mean, what are we going to find going down there? You know, we know that for the most part, these ships, if uh, there was any on, one on board, you know, hopefully. The first divers early on found them, and they were re- removed and paid in, in a respectful fashion. But, you know, people do get surprises down there from time to time. But yeah, this is a wonderful find. Beautiful ship. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, see, there weren't any plans available of it, but I'm sure from what we're seeing there, we can deduce quite well what she looked like. Um, well, then they're going to be able to, from these drawings, especially it, they know where it's at. You get a couple ROVs. Uh, with the technology you've got now, 
you could create plans from what you're able to get. And, and there's not a lot missing from the wreck, uh, it, at least as far as the structure. You're going to be able to get, uh, I mean, you could create plans from this. Yeah, I'm sure of that, yeah. It's not a very large large ship, though. What was that uh, 58 no. feet? You know, it's not. I mean, I know that ships were smaller then, so it, it may have been common size in its day. But yeah. certainly, based upon uh, you know a century later, that's a, that's a pretty it's pretty tiny. Yeah, and we had kind of an arms race of uh, of shipping with with everything you need to improve productivity, and that came with being able to carry more cargo with less people and less investment. And uh, shipping, while it was risky, uh, a lot of these vessels were paid off very rapidly, which is why we see uh, a lot of the really decayed and decrepit vessels that sank. Uh, because once you paid it off, uh, you had you were flush with cash. Uh, a lot of these merchants who owned these shipping vessels uh, built beautiful homes and and were businessmen in their community, and they might only get a few runs and sell it off to the next guy who didn't have quite as much money and resources and it would go uh, down the hands and, uh, you know, there might not have been the, in fact, frequently there wasn't the maintenance plans in place to keep these vessels running in which they should be. Uh, and then and then we've seen, uh, when we we're doing studies for uh, Max Wreck, uh, there was a lot of wrecks that would get, uh, they, w- they would either sink or just be retired and they would go back to a shipyard and be extended or modified. But yeah, at this yeah. age, 50, 53 feet, uh, well, it seems small. As I, I imagine it was probably pretty normal for that day. Yeah, well, that's the time when they, you know, routinely crossed the ocean in vessels under 200 foot long. And so we never even think about today, but to oh. them, that was quite commonplace. Yeah, that's yeah. Anxious to hear more about this one. Yes. Um, so it's been two weeks. Uh, we'll have to catch up. Uh, Max uh, was, was, is around, but uh, he's having problems with Skype, so we'll catch him next week. There's been some dives. I, I actually did get in the water and get a dive in. I did a Lake 16 dive. Uh, Bob and Kurt and I were planning on going out to Lake Michigan. We are going to dive uh, one of our standbys, the Rockaway, uh, but we had some boat problems, so we did a backup dive to Lake 16. And visibility was crap. We had... Uh, less than eight feet. Uh, I had a little bit of a hose issue, so I had to change hoses out. Uh, and I, uh, I was also, even though I was in a dry suit, Lake 16 is cold. In August, it was pretty chilly. So I, I with with low visibility and it being cold, I I let Kurt and Bob continue on down, and I just practiced some buoyancy and enjoyed the weather. Yeah, I imagine once you get below that, that thermal line and, you know, Lake 16's got enough algae, it probably was pretty dark down there too, wasn't it? It was really dark, but they said the visibility improved when they got down to, because Lake 16 for a little lake gets deep, and once they were below uh, 50 feet, it opened up, but it was pitch black. It was like night, it was a night dive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and they, got, like they got some nice dives. Bob was doing his rebreather, and Kurt was, you know, doing his steel tanks and uh but it was nice to get back in the water and get some, you know, it, it, it keeps reminding me that if you don't keep diving, it takes a little bit to get in uh, condition. In fact, one thing I had the opportunity to do, I was hanging around the, the deck just kind of swimming laps. And it didn't look like many people had been out there. There was a lot of uh, growth on the platform. So, I, you know, I, I did my normal, normal doodling in, uh, in the, the growth and silt on the deck. Uh, but I was listening to my heart my heartbeat. Uh, I don't know something with the seals of my dry suit or something, but my heart was either I was very high blood pressure or just I was in a mode where I could listen. 
And it was interesting to see how when I, when I would breathe in, my heartbeat was faster than when I would breathe out. And it was significant difference. So that might be a question for my doctor when I go and visit him in a few yeah. weeks. Is that, is, that, is that normal? I've uh, never heard of that. So, yeah, I would, I'd be very curious about it. <laughs> I'd be quite I have, I have about noticed it. that when I have gone and given blood, uh, they've, they've, you know, they've, um, I can I can slow my heart rate down by relaxing, but I just thought that was a normal thing. But listening to it on the swimming around was a was a little unnerving as to the extent that it was changing. But, uh, maybe that's my superpower. <laughs> yeah, okay. you know, you know, maybe maybe I'm like a, a turtle or something. I can just slow it down to a few beats. And maybe you don't get an arc like that. Well, you know, that probably would really cut down on your air consumption if you could do that. Well, I, and I do have a fairly low air consumption. Like I was saying uh, when we were interviewing Bob, um, my my first year in 80, I can remember getting to the bottom on, like, the Havana, swimming half a link looking, and I'm down at 500 pounds. And I'm like, well, what the heck, you know? Um, and I, and I, one trick was don't breathe off your regulator till you're going down. I mean, you, you check it, but if you're sucking on air in the surface, that's just less air you have at the bottom. But right. I just uh, right. learned, and I'm and I'm. I don't want to advocate this to anybody because you know you're, you're you're taught to always breathe, but you you probably don't need to breathe as much as you think you do. And so I'm I'm able to get I I can, and I'm not, I'm probably not any better shape than I was, but I can get probably twice the the dive out of a tank than I used to when I was in my first thirty dives. Yeah, you're, you're definitely not bad on air. I've, I've dove with you several times, and um, you know you're a little bit bigger guy than I am, so you expect you to go through air a little faster than I do. But um, you and I seem to be pretty well on par in consumption. And you know, I, I think you might be actually be take that size into account probably a little better on air than I am. So yeah, you, I think I've you do done, quite well. I, when I, when I got my computer working, I've done some of the SAC review rates, and I'm I'm in the, the group of what most experienced divers are. So I. I feel pretty good that way. I, I always want to get in better shape just for, uh, you know, because when things go bad, you know, again, we talked about, uh, you know, John Chatterton and his talk about his dive. And you know, it's when you do a lot of physical activity and that's a, that's a, exasperated by being out of shape. And that's something I don't want to be in. I want to be in better shape so that, you know, when, when things go bad, you they don't go as bad. Yeah, you you have a better chance of working your way through them. Uh, now, what kind of dives did you get in the last uh, week or so? Um, let me see. I got in four dives. Well, two tanks each on the same rack, but um, I was up there actually the same time as Bob was. It's kind of cool. Uh, I was up there at uh, Whitefish Point on a dive charter, and as we're gearing up at the uh, boat launch there, like, hey, I, I think I know that boat over there. And sure enough, that's uh, Hanikov's boat over there. And, well, hey, I know this van pulling up. And there's Bob Underhill <laughs> dropping his gear off to load up, too. Um, we went out and built the Vienna. They got there a little bit, little bit ahead of us. Um, we got two dives on the, Havana, on the Vienna. Um, really nice wreck just outside the uh, State Harbor at Whitefish Point. It's only uh, about a mile and a half from the, uh, from the harbor. Um, Magnificent wreck, uh, magnificent wreck. Um, bottom is like 146. You can reach the deck at about 125. Um, I did not do any penetration. I'm not trained for that. 
Um, there was some in our group that, that were and did. Um, it's, um, this, is a, this is a shipwreck which has a lot of artifacts on it still. Um, same as the Hume was, you know, you know, a few weeks before. Um, you know, you can look down through the hatches and you can see stuff on the benches and things in there. It's, uh, you know, the, the hull's quite intact. It does have some damage to it. The Vienna went down in a collision. Um, kind of a shame, too. It went down, it, it was hit in a collision a ways offshore. They tried to tow it in and it actually foundered on the way in only a mile offshore. That oh. must have been heartbreaking to get it that close and lose it. Um, but it's, you know, the hull's quite intact. Um, you've got a lifeboat sitting on the deck. Um, there are tools and machinery parts scattered here and there. Very, very cool boiler. Still has the uh, the handles on it. Uh, I think there were some gauges on it and things which are kind of encrusted. Of course, Lake Superior, no muscles. little disappointed in the visibility. You know, visibility was down to about 15 feet. Um, but still, when you're looking at this wreck, you're not just simply seeing the boards. You're seeing the caulking between the boards. Um, you know, beautiful wreck. Uh, there's there are some pictures of it out there. Um, I think Robert McGreevy has uh, done a number of pictures of it. You know, both before it sank and after it sank, with divers on it and things. Um, if you can get up there, folks, the Vienna out of Whitefish Point, beautiful wreck. We put two tanks on that. My buddy Deb and I, Deb Wachowski. Um, we had a group of six up there. Um, good guys. You know, we had a real, real experienced crew. Um, Jason, Kevin, Richard, and Hillary. Uh, of course, we were a group of led by Warren. Great dive. Put two tanks on that. Then we also, uh, I did a little trip up to the barge, trying to confirm some details out there. I'm talking about Boltzmann's barge that's out of South Haven. Um, pretty cool dive. It's got some penetration potential on it. Again, I didn't penetrate it. Just um, get more pictures on it and do, do a little bit of, you know, I'm trying to learn some things about this wreck, so I'm out there quite a bit. Put two tanks on that. Nice. So any plans for this weekend? Well, the uh, Mud Club has their uh, straight trip coming up. So most of my spare time right now is spent getting the uh, the camper and the boat and the truck and the gear all loaded up and ready to go. Um, we plan on doing uh, diving at the straights first part of the week, and then we're going to trek up to, uh, again, Whitefish Point. After I told Bob and Jim about Havana, oh, about uh, Vienna, I guess Bob's been on the Vienna before, but Jim seemed pretty stoked about it, and that's definitely high on the list. Uh, we're probably going to dive a number of wrecks outside of uh, Whitefish Point. I was kind of picking Bob's brain earlier, well, Bob Underhill's brain about it earlier, what's good. And he has some great recommendations, but most of his recommendations are a little bit deeper than Jim and I want to go. Oh. <laughs> uh, Bob Sweeney is prepared for it. But I don't think he quite wants to solo those things. So no. uh, you know, we'll we'll you know we'll figure it out when we get up there based on wind conditions. And um, but you know, mm-hmm. Whitefish Point, marvelous. Have, have, have you dove up there, Darren? The Whitefish Point, no. I, I mean, I've done Sheboygan, mm-hmm. uh, but I, uh, I've I've done you know probably five or six wrecks up there along the Straits. I certainly need to get up there again. I, I haven't had a chance to get into Cedarville, which is always a, a oh. good dive. Yeah, you really should make a point of that, Darren. That's a really cool dive. Um, want to caution our listeners, though, the, uh, the Cedarville has been the site of a number of accidents, though, with divers. So uh, don't look at it lightly. Um, a lot of divers look at the Cedarville as being a 
you know, hey, they think it's, it's an easy dive. I guess you can reach the Cedarville at 40 feet. Problem is, is that, well, at 40 feet, you see the, the propeller shaft. Well, if I get a little deeper, I can look at the cabins. Well, now you're down to 75. Well, that's pretty cool, you know. Maybe I can go down and look at the cargo hatches. Well, now you're kind of underneath it a little bit because the Cedarville is, is, is healed over. Um, it's not quite upside down, but it's pretty close to it. And now you're dealing with some overhead environment. And I'm not sure of the numbers, but I do know for a fact that several times there have been the number of divers have perished on it than crew when it went down. So please, friends, Cedarville's are a very cool wreck, but use caution on that one. Uh, don't, don't do penetrations unless you're trained for it. Um, careful your depth. The bottom there is 110 feet to the bottom. You know, it's a um, very cool wreck. Lot to see. You know, it's, uh, what is that, like five, 580, I want to say, Darren? It's, it's a very long wreck. It's a, it'd be a beautiful wreck to have sunk down here, is my thought. That's, that's kind mm-hmm. of the goal. The, the size of the wreck would be perfect to have in one of our preserves. That, it is a, it's, a, it's an awesome wreck. I mean, it, and it comes from off the bottom that, and you could set the thing down and, um, you know, 150 feet of water and still have a lot of it in sport depth and right. you wall out of the shipping, shipping hazards and all. Yeah. Um, it meets you know, the it, criteria for me for if we're going to sh- uh, sink a shipwreck in a preserve. You've got, it's large enough where it's a multi-day dive. I mean, not just two tanks, but you could go a Saturday and a Sunday. So if we're going to get divers from outside the area to come and see a wreck, one like the Cedarville is nice. You want to put it deep enough where you've got a tech opportunity, but you've also got it shallow enough to where you've got plenty of wreck that's at uh, sports depth. So, um, and, and then there is penetration. Uh, if, if we were to sink one, uh, you would want to cut hatches and openings in, and and have specific routes that you would have for the, you know, for for uh, dive training. So if I'm going to do a, a wreck dive course and I'm going to teach students, that would be what you would go on into a penetration you'd lay your lines out and go into the wreck uh, so that, that's, that's that's on my short list of of things to do in the next couple of years is try and figure out how do we get a cedarville type of wreck down here in in one of our preserves or you could just go see the cedarville type of wreck up there I you mean, could uh, you know you could. probably a little easier i mean it'd be nice to have one here but um if you get a chance darren i mean even just just a weekend trip up there you know there are some charters in the area that mm-hmm. uh do a, do a great job um you know, it's not that far offshore. I mean, I want to say it's only like two miles out of Mackinac City. It's, oh, uh, oh, yeah, it's it's not. It's Yeah, there, and there's plenty of charters that would go and do it. So that's really not the issue. In fact, we're talking about the uh, the Mud Club uh, putting together some two-day dives. And, and maybe that's even something we might do as part of the program. Might be if you want to dive with, you know, uh, some of the scuba-obsessed cast, uh, we'll have some charters set up and then maybe you can go and do a dive with us. So that, that's also a, a potential coming down the road. And as we mentioned that, if you think the show is at least worth a dollar, head over to our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. Uh, follow the links to Patreon and give us a donation. And you're going to see uh, we've got uh, some, some teasers of items that you're going to be able to get. So certain donations you will be able to get if you want to hold and own something that Mac found in the river. We're going to put photos up there. And they're going to be kind of a first-come, first-serve. Uh, so you'll be able to go and say, hey, in exchange for my donation for this wonderful program that we're putting on every week, 
almost 300 episodes coming up and five episodes will hit our 300th. Uh, you can show your appreciation. Keep us on the air, uh, which goes to things such as improving the recording equipment and uh, maintaining our hosting and service, servers. So that again, that's uh, Patreon. Follow the links at www.scubobsessed.com. You can follow us on Twitter at scubobsessed, and we're also on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash scubobsessed. Uh, Kevin, do you have anything you want to plug? Well, how much time have I got, Darren? I, can, I get, can I get three? I get three minutes here? Sure, go ahead. Okay. Um, I not necessarily a plug here. Um, I do want to mention that uh, we did lose one of our scuba greats last week. Uh, Harry Zeke passed away, uh, I believe, on the morning of the twelfth. Um, he uh, most well known for finding the, the Lady Elgin, uh, Chicago area. Um, involved in a number of legal squabbles when it came to, to uh, shipwrecks and ownership and things. I do want to say that uh, some of the fallout from those legal squabbles uh, end up protecting a lot of our rights as far as being divers. It has to do with why diving is a lot less restricted here in Michigan than it is in Canada. Okay. Um, yes, he had his enemies. He had his detractors. Um, personally, I knew him, and Harry and I, yeah, we had a little spat here and there, but, but Harry was a good guy. Yeah, I'm sad to see him go. So I do want to mention that about Harry there. Um, as far as plugs, you know, uh, support your local libraries. They're great for researching on shipwrecks. Uh, good places to go. Also, uh, you know, we're kind of an area we're watching a lot of brick-and-mortar uh, shops having a hard time. So I want to really encourage our listeners to support your local dive shops. Um, you know, we don't support those guys, and they're going to go away. And, you know, it's going to be kind of hard to get your tank filled or your or your regulator serviced with an online merchant. So support your local dive shops, please. Yeah, we don't have the Internet-based uh, air fill working yet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, good luck with that one. <laughs> so certainly support your local dive shops. And if you're a dive shop and you want us to mention you, you can get contact us through the show at scubaobsessed.com. We'll go ahead and give you a shout-out and, and let uh, the listeners know that you also listen to the program. All so right. I'd like to thank everybody in the chat room. We had uh, VK Mark. Uh, we had Rec Hunter. Uh, Mac was in there. Flyboy Ned. Scuba Tech. Uh, we do record on TalkShoe, and we will be going to video here really soon. I know we've been saying this for a long, long time, but... We're working out the details. I'm I'm actually just today working on some hosting changes that will be will put in place before we go to video, uh, but that's coming down the road, and, and so you'll see a different chat room that we've had, and that comes through the donation support of our listeners. So I think we're getting to that point of the show. Are you ready? Let's do it, Darren. Okay, and this one, and uh, I, I normally don't give credit other than if it's rod but this this one was jim schultz so if you don't like it you can give jim jim a complaint or you can send us a your own bad scuba joke and we'll go ahead and do it a drunken man walks into a biker bar sits down at the bar and orders a drink looking around he sees three men sitting at a corner table he gets up staggers the table leans over looks at the biggest meanest one in the face and says i went by your grandma's house today and i saw her in the hallway buck naked man she's a fine looking woman the biker looks at him and doesn't say a word. His buddies are confused because he is one bad biker, and he would fight at the drop of a hat. The drunk leans on the table again and says, 
I got it on with your grandma, and she is good. She is the best I ever had. The biker's buddies are starting to get really mad, but the biker says nothing. Drunk leans over the table one more time and says, And I'll tell you what else, boy. Your grandma liked it. At this point, the biker stands up, takes a drunk by his shoulder and says, Grandpa, you're drunk. Go home. like that one all right not i I won't rev jim too bad for that one (laughs) (laughs) so until next week go out there and get wet stay safe Recording has been completed. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> In the chat room, they're saying, and that was bad. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to, I was looking at it. I was trying to figure out how we put a scuba diver in there, but it didn't quite work out.